0: This is Hear Me Out. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. It may feel like the war on drugs was a long time ago. In a way it was, but today's landscape of substance use, both legal and illicit, is very much still shaped by it. And our country's narratives about drug use are still driven by these ideas of abstinence and morality. Evidently, that hasn't worked. And as overdose deaths are on the rise, it's worth asking, what does work? And what might help stem the
1: tide? We have to actually work harder to make sure that all those basic needs are given to our people so they're not dying or they're not on the streets without any hope. Laura Guzman, Executive Director of the National Harm Reduction
0: Coalition joins us. Stay with us.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: We're going to talk about drug use, mental health, overdose deaths, and other sensitive topics in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. And if you need help... We'll link to some resources in the show notes. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. By the time you finish listening to this episode, approximately six Americans will have died of a drug overdose. That tragic number comes from the CDC's provisional data for the last year, which shows that an estimated 105,000 people in this country have overdosed and died in the past 12 months, Notice we said provisional. The CDC says that as they collect and verify data, that number will only grow. The vast majority of these people died from taking opioids. And yes, despite the news you might have heard about court settlements from Big Pharma, the opioid crisis is still very much ongoing. At best, the rate of these deaths is just beginning to slow in this country, but in many states they're still on the rise. All overdose deaths are preventable ones, and prevention programs have been in place for years around the nation. So why are tens of thousands of people still dying because of overdose? Harm reduction is a tactic used by progressive cities and grassroots groups, and it's been deeply polarizing. You might not know what harm reduction really means in practice because it's complicated, and public discussions about it are often misleading and sometimes intentionally confusing. Luckily for us, our guest today is a bona fide expert in this topic, and she's here to present the case that harm reduction works. Laura Guzman is the executive director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition.
1: Welcome. Hi Celeste, thank you for having me here. Okay, so what is harm reduction? So we 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 have many definitions because harm reduction yes. is a set of strategies. So in in a In one sense, it's a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing the negative consequences associated with drug use. So in that sense, that's how we've been doing a lot of capacity building. We have been doing, you know, gatherings. We have been uh, actually increasing our knowledge as we see a more dangerous drug supply. So it's a set of strategies that goes from abstinence, all the way to, you know, making sure that we're educating people who might be for first-time first drug users, right, and, and doing overdose prevention needs. But for us, Hummer Action is also a movement for social justice built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. And that's where our beginnings. We saw that this country really didn't care if people who injected or used drugs were dying of AIDS. And so that is how we formed the harm reduction coalition. And at this point, there are coalitions throughout the country that were inspired by that group of people. Many of which were people living with HIV and AIDS. There were activists. There were Black folks. There were Latino folks. There were researchers. People who said in this country we need to also take care of the health of people impacted by drug use. So,
0: the the issue that many people have with harm reduction is that um, they feel it's not addressing the addiction itself. I wanna read you um, an op-ed that was written by somebody named Mark Johnson. Now he's talking about harm reduction in Canada, but his criticism is the same. He says, imagine you're an army general who's sent in to turn around a losing war, Things are going badly, the enemy is winning. You change the strategy. Everyone supports your new strategy and thinks it'll work but instead of turning the tide, your casualties increase by 10 times and you keep losing. Every month the numbers keep getting worse and that's the situation right now with the harm reduction strategy to mitigate drug overdoses. Casualties continue to climb and the enemy is winning. In other words, he's saying that we've had harm reduction for a long time drug overdoses continue to rise,
1: why aren't we trying something else? Well, that's a false narrative. It is a false narrative because I started by saying abstinence, treatment, behavioral health support, housing, there are all the strategies that are needed to support people who are impacted by drug use. We also want to say, and it's very important to know that the impact that drug use has, according to class, race, and in in this country, have been different. And therefore, it's very important that at a time that actually the deaths are impacting, and nobody talks about it, primarily Native, Black, and Latinx folks, those are the overdose deaths that are rising. In some ways, we also create false narratives to say treatment is not what harm reaction does. In fact, the majority of people in the harm reaction movement who were people with a history of, lived, you know, a lived expertise of drug use are in recovery have used treatment. The problem is there has never been enough. There has never been enough harm reaction resourcing, and there has never been enough appropriate drug treatment resources for the populations who are ready, willing, and able. And so why we say it's a false narrative is because right now, in order to attack moralistic perceptions about the evidence-based work we've been doing for 30 years, I call it human rights and evidence-based work, is by just alleging that we're not talking about treatment. In fact, in California, many of our syringe service programs that um, were uh, we were funding through the California Harm Reaction Initiative have also MAD programs, medication-assisted therapy, linkages to treatment. It's just that there is not enough. It's also true that there is not enough of other things that are basic needs that people who use drugs who are poor, who are, you know, again, racialized in this country, what we've done really well is criminalization of our people. What we haven't done really well is put the resources needed across the board. Health access, substance use treatment access, behavioral health treatment access, housing, pay- payment for jobs that actually allow you to be endorsed. And so the false narrative about uh, harm reduction is not treatment is false. The, the treatment is available for everyone is false. And all of the skeleton, all the other systemic violent systems that we have not changed are also impacting the very people who are most disproportionately impacted by death. And I want to name it. In this country are Black, Native, and Latinx folks in the intersection with age and house status, uh, trans and queer status. So that is what those false narratives are not naming. And I'm passionate about this because I've been doing it for 30 years. I'm not looking out of my, you know, going to school kind of head. (laughs) You know,
0: it's odd to me. There is a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there about harm reduction strategies. You know, it hasn't been that long since the Brookings Institution, um, just a few years, came out with a report uh, claiming that harm reduction strategies did nothing to help people who were addicted and they ended up having to at least partially retract that because pretty much every expert um was said that the economist ignored... was that the economist yes the economist yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, and i know
1: exactly good challenge uh,
0: yes there was a lot of doctors who said he had missed and he had in fact mischaracterized decades of science to arrive at that conclusion and again they had to retract that and the rand corporation had just come out with a with a report that had the entirely opposite conclusion. My, my point is to say that um, there has been a lot of argument over the efficacy of harm reduction strategies. And part of this is because it's so difficult to track addicts themselves and whether they themselves are successful in ever getting free of their addiction.
1: So how do we know? That's not true. Okay, go ahead. I mean, I think I'm glad you're bringing Rand and you're bringing uh, misconstruction of research. I mean, we have in this country alone, because we are really behind (laughs) when you compare it to the rest of at least some of quote unquote developed world, like, you know, parts of Europe and, and Canada. Actually, we have at this point more than 30 years of research that shows that in different forms harm reduction interventions work. And when I say harm reduction interventions, go from the most important, which is how we started, reducing the risk and impacts of HIV, hepatitis C, uh, skin tissue infections, uh, among the most important for people who inject drugs, and the reduction. The reduction was shown even in places like where, you know, uh, people like Pence, you know, had to change his course and allow syringe service programs in his jurisdiction when there was an alarming rate of HIV and hepatitis C infections, which of course- You're talking about Mike Pence? I'm talking about Mike Pence. And he had to change course and authorize, even though we're still fighting in some of those jurisdictions, the ability of syringe service programs to operate. So we have proven science that shows what happens in terms of reduction of very impacting and, and actually, you know, these are conditions that result in death are resulting, you know, long-term impacts like HIV at this point. So we we have tons of evidence to show that. Where people get really judgy is in this arena of tracking whether or not people who use drugs stop using drugs. And even the RAND Corporation have done research that shows that people, for example, with alcohol use, um, even when they have problematic Alcohol use and they stop and they go through treatment. We know that about 30% of them actually uh stay abstinent. 30% of them may go back actually, they may stay chaotic, uh uh chaotic uh alcohol users, but the half of that of those folks go back to use moderately. So there are these extremes ideas about um addiction, and whether or not everybody who uses drugs, which is a lot of people in the United States, should actually be all be in recovery because it assumes that everybody in some ways who uses drugs are severely impacted or are chaotic drug users, and that is not true either. Who we're talking about are the very people that have the highest challenges because our racialized drug policies for over a century, have been in place. So who gets surveilled? You know, San Francisco, California, drunk white folks who are rich will never be stopped by the cops. But Latinx who are, you know, struggling with not being able to pay rent and maybe drinking will be the ones that will get arrested. In fact, right now in San Francisco, anybody with drug use may be arrested because we're going back to, you know, uh, 30 years of failed policies about incarcerating people who use drugs. So who is the target? Of that judgment matters and so in harm reduction we distinguish the impacts that all other systems you know of inequities make our people much more vulnerable not only to chaotic drug use because of their histories of trauma incarceration and racist you know surveillance and health inequities and so we also believe that we have to actually work harder to make sure that all those basic needs are given to our people so they're not dying or they're not on the streets without any hope. I I will not argue with you that our drug policy
0: is horribly racist. Uh, We're going to have to take a break and we will get back with the very passionate Laura Guzman. She is executive director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. There's a lot more to talk about. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I am Celeste Headley. We will be right back. I'm back. This is "Hear Me Out" podcast from Slate, and today we're talking about does harm reduction work when it comes to drug overdose. And with us is Laura Guzman of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And before we took a break, we were talking about the fact that uh, drug policies uh, end up criminalizing drug use mostly and especially when it comes to uh, Black and Brown communities. And and Laura, you get absolutely no argument from me there. You'll also get no argument from me that the just say no uh, idea is ridiculous. It doesn't work in sex and it definitely doesn't work in um, drugs. But I will say that um, some studies have shown that people who pursue abstinence as a recovery goal have higher rates of sustained sobriety um, than those who who use like uh, moderate substance abuse or, or use a purely harm reduction in terms of you know trying to produce uh, controlled substance use and that that the, 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 the abstinence based approaches end up providing that that more stable foundation
1: for long term recovery. What would you say to that? I don't think the data supports that. I think that still we see that most abstinence based programs that doesn't have a lot of other components like behavioral health support, um, you know, medication treatment. Actually, thirty percent of I mean, the data shows that about 30% of people that go through abstinence programs stay sober or uh, abstinent from drugs for a long time. Um, We have not changed the modality in which we do drug treatment in this country, except for, you know, some pioneering and more, you know, expansive ways to do medication treatment. You know, we, we do treatment for cancer, but when we talk about treatment, I'm talking medication treatment for substance abuse. People just jump. In fact, right now, there is this crazy abstinence-only recovery movement, which only works for 30% of the people that it works. A lot of the modalities of treatment in this country still follow uh, confrontational therapy. They believe that you you, you have some weak ego if you use drugs. So we still haven't changed the modality in which we do treatment, but we know that actually a lot of people have attained recovery by using harm reduction strategies. And that even includes nicotine users like myself, which I'm a forever nicotine user, and I'm just starting to to use the patch. But think about nicotine in this country. We are so emboldened about, about putting down people who have been addicted to nicotine. And I, I take nicotine because it's interesting. It's not usually in the harm reaction world. But this is one of the countries with the most vicious policies right now, you know, vapes being outlawed, and all these conversations, when you see that places in Europe and Japan are really investing in harm reduction approaches to help those people that still are addicted to nicotine, like myself, to really invest in a set of harm reduction strategies that will help them. So data does not actually uh, show that, and actually my experience with many of my friends that recover, And once again, abstinence may be the goal for some. If chaotic drug use, if, if drug use is chaotic, if any, any, you know, anything that we do in a particular way that is chaotic and is actually putting us in harm ways, that's what we also emphasize the lens of harm reaction is to minimize and reduce harms to the extent we can. Because we also accept the fact that humans are drug users, that we have our brains built in <laughs> to experiment with substances and plants. And you know what? That it's showing in anthropological and archaeological work across the world. So this idea, this country has this incredible fascination with these extremes around, you know, abstinence from alcohol and then you know, everybody drinking and or you know staying abstinent as some moral, you know, you get a moral badge uh, rather than really focus on the ways in which particularly some drug use impacts people who are also impacted by many other, what they're called, you know, the the social impacts, which are really the way in which in this country we really continue to uh, actually increase poverty, increase houselessness, uh, actually limit the way in which people have access to cultural, linguistic, appropriate treatment of any kind, healthcare, drug treatment, stigma. Just the fact that all the all that narrative is out there is just re-stigmatizing folks who are even trying, in of all odds, to really support themselves in the best way they can. And harm reaction programs do that. During COVID in California, the only programs that were out giving out water, needles, Narcan kids, and making sure people went alive were harm reaction programs.
0: So, I mean, the 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 data I was citing came from three communities in England that pu- was published in 2018. Again, there is a lot of different data, and, and it different doesn't always a clear model. Absolutely, absolutely, okay. it's absolutely true. <laughs> um, but the, you know, then you get all these different. Not only do you have different models of harm reduction, um, as you were talking about, but you have different interpretations, and then you have. Different people relaying different messages about it. And in, in this case, you get people like Ted Cruz, who described the uh, a Biden administration program as providing free crack pipes. This is not true. I want to say it in the front that this was completely untrue. Let's talk about pipes. Because- Wait, let me let me just finish this really quickly. And then um, Joe Manchin, who was a, a Democrat, a moderate Democrat from West Virginia, then um, echoed something that Marco Rubio said. And they went on to introduce legislation that would prohibit any government federal money from purchasing paraphernalia for people, things like pipes or needles. So this untrue statement that Ted Cruz had made then became proposed legislation based on something that that wasn't even true. I mean, this is has to be part of something that that complicates what you do.
1: Absolutely. And let's take pipes. So and quote unquote, the fentanyl epidemic. And uh, the fact that in fact, criminalization is what makes the drug supply even more dangerous. And this kind of believes that do not correspond to a public health approach. And this is the other thing that I haven't said. What politicians do is make statements to get votes. They do double speak. In fact, the Biden administration did double speak about supporting harm reaction when said, because putting against the wall with this racist Republican allegations about crack pipes. By the way, you know, crack is in the decline. People are still smoking crack, but people are smoking is fentanyl. What we know is actually smoking is, and people are shifting from injecting heroin to smoking fentanyl, which from a public health perspective is so much better, because that means that people are not acquiring hepatitis C, uh, HIV, or skin tissue infections, which are deadly like endocarditis. Um, And actually, the promotion of uh, what we call smoking supplies actually helps to, again, not incur the government in millions of dollars spent on hepatitis C treatment, HIV, uh, and skin tissue infection treatment. And most important, that keeps our folks actually alive. And so whether it's needles or whether it's pipes, supplies are part of the spectrum of actually public health to support people to stay healthy. And so how politicians use this double speak continuously at this point is disingenuous, because we know enough at this point, after 30 or 40 years of the actually, you know, HIV epidemic, for example, we know what the new infections look like. We know where, we know who is most impacted. And so there shouldn't be any discussions about pipes, which by the way, for fentanyl, people are using foil, not pipes yet. uh, But pipes have been used as a public health intervention to make sure that people who smoke crack or meth do not actually get exposed to hepatitis C in particular, because it's uh, very easy to transmit um, You know, through share uh, supplies. And paraphernalia in some states is no longer paraphernalia. Harm reduction supplies are part of the California's Department of Public Health. In some of our states, they're legal because public health confirms that our preventative measures to much larger diseases not only kill our people, but also cost a lot of money <laughs> to the government. So the double speed, I'm sick and tired of it. In San Francisco, we have right now a supervisor that about two months ago wanted a safe consumption side and then now changed to say he wants the money to go to jail to have jail health services serve the needs of people who use drugs. We're back to reincarcerate people we just decarcerated. <laughs> and it's like, listen. We've been doing that game for over fifty years. Criminalization does not change how people use drugs. Does not change how people enter treatment. It actually makes people feel worse. It impacts them with more trauma. Let's stop a game that doesn't have any gains. So then, let's discuss
0: whether or not harm reduction in any way normalizes the use of of drugs.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a statement that we hear. No. Harm reduction accepts, for good or for worse, that people engage in drug use, that people engage in using illicit drugs, that people engage in different ways with drug use because for many is the most important coping mechanism. We have had tons of studies showing the correlation between, you know, early sexual abuse, trauma, and and the impact of drug use. As an example, there are many others in which. Yeah, and sometimes from a from a population-specific perspective, Black and Latino folks, they felt, we felt our communities were pushed with crack cocaine in the 80s by the United States government. So sometimes it's the overflow of drugs in our communities. So we do not enable or condemn. We accept the fact, right? We are pragmatic. And that's why public health needs to do the same thing, is accepting that for better or for worse. People engage with drug use, and we engage in very different ways according to who we are, our history, our context. So what I what I mean is,
0: we have the same discussion around alcohol use as well, right? Not necessarily whether adults will use drugs, but what, how we prevent them from becoming normalized to the extent that minors, kids, uh, feel like that's a normal part of. Being an adult, like that's an normal part of life, and then we'll experiment with them, right? Is there any concern that harm reduction would would normalize the use of drugs and and make it uh, um so much part of of
1: normal everyday life that we don't have to do that work that that is the norm <laughs> that is what it is and be, believe me I was born before harm reduction in South America and I was exposed to weed and smoking weed when I was 13 years old. I did not need harm reduction to know I wanted to experiment with it. I grew up in a dictatorship. It was the only escaping for our you know, generation besides alcohol, uh, which was legal. And uh, in spite of how illegal it was and you could go to jail and my, my, my friends went to jail when they were 15 and 16, we did it. It was the way to both uh, contest the military dictatorship, uh, organize and actually feel a little better in a you know state of siege environment and i can quote you all the other ways in which we know before hamrashon existed that um, youth experiment with drugs and many other things because it's part of the you know growing up process and so any of those challenges don't make any sense in the history of the world so i just want to say we accept for better or for worse that people use illegal su- substances and we have the harm reduction lens to try to do as much as we can, prevention, education, and minimizing the harms. With, again, that lens of also, and this is, I have to say this before we, we we close, is with expertise also people use drugs. We really not only talk about upholding their human rights, but also their knowledge. Sometimes we dismiss people because they use drugs, and they're the very people who know exactly What's out there in this supply? What are best ways to prevent an overdose? Is? How how can they be helped better to be able? Meth users, for example, there's no treatment. Nobody has come out with really good ways to help people who use meth, even though people talk shit about people who use meth. So that's an example where there's a lot to be done. And uh, we believe that hum reaction is a continuum within all of the different interventions that we do as we support people uh, towards health and dignity.
0: But I gotta end here, which is to take us back to the beginning Um, and the the just unacceptably high number of people dying of drug overdose. So clearly harm reduction, even if it is helpful, even if it
1: is a, a positive step, it's not the solution. That's correct, because harm reduction, all we can do is to to do as much as we can. Naloxone, this is about opiates, so naloxone saturation, overdose prevention. But let me tell you, many communities, we still haven't had the resources to do that. So that's very important. So there are new communities using fentanyl, like black and brown communities. They never use opiates before. So a lot of work to be done. Uh, we just changed in California by getting money from opiate settlement funds to actually enhance harm reduction. Groups, SSPs that can do that work in communities most impacted. These are communities that otherwise are also impacted by many other reasons that make an overdose possible. So, the fact that you're not eating well, the fact that you're not sleeping well, the fact that you may have disabilities or, you know, living outside to the mercy of weather, all those factors impact an overdose. So, it's very important to know that the death is not just the drug, but all of the other ways in which COVID really increase the numbers because people were using alone without having any support systems. So overdose deaths don't happen just because of a drug and the drug supply is very scary because we keep criminalizing drugs and people in this country. So overdose deaths will not reduce until we do some comprehensive addressing of the basic needs as well as, you know, decriminalizing bodies and drugs in this country.
0: Okay, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Laura Guzman. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Love to the people. Love to you guys. Okay, so this was a lot. I mean, I got to say that this is a lot to take in. And I have never struggled with addiction, but I, there are many people in my life who I love who have. And I, frankly, am ready for all the solutions that would help people Stay alive. Um, so if you have thoughts on this, please email us. It's hearmeoutslate.com. Last week we had Sarah Stewart on the show talking about why people are behaving so very badly at events like concerts and movies and how we can please, please get it to stop. Lots of you emailed us with lots of ideas about this issue and your own stories about concerts and movie going. We wanted to share one note we got from a listener named Deb. Deb wrote this. Here's an old fashioned idea from an old lady. Perhaps we need to bring back some sort of finishing school to teach young people how to behave in thoughtful ways in public and in private. I don't know, Deb. I don't, I'm not, I don't know if finishing school would work. I know we say this every episode, but we really do mean it. We love hearing from you, all of your ideas. Email us with them. It's slate.com. Email us if you run a finishing school. Email us if you would attend a finishing school. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open.